We're going to be looking at Job chapter 18 this morning. You want to find that in your Bibles, it's on page 428 in the ESVP Bibles. It's maybe on a different page, obviously, in your own personal Bible, but it's Job 18. We'll take the whole chapter, 1 through 21. This is part of our ongoing, continuing series through the book of Job. And we're learning a lot about God and suffering, and we're also seeing how the book of Job points to our Savior, Jesus Christ. So before we go to Job 18, let's ask God for the illuminating power of the Holy Spirit. Heavenly Father, as we come before your word this morning, we want to understand it. We ask that through the power of your Holy Spirit, you would give us sight you give us understanding, we want to see the, the meaning of this passage, and we also want to apply it to our lives. Father, we thank you that we can trust every single word of Scripture. Every single word is God-breathed. So Father, we thank you for your holy and errant word, and we ask that we would glorify you by listening in faith. In Jesus' name, amen. There was a young couple that were buying their first house. And so they were looking at a lot of homes on the, on the lower end of the market. And they had found one that they were attracted to because it was advertised as having a new roof. And so they realized that when they were looking at something in this price range, they were probably going to get something that needed a little work but they didn't want to get in over their head. And so a friend of, of one of their parents knew a guy who was a home inspector, so they hired him to do a home inspection. And the day arrived, and they all showed up, and he went through the house, and he, he wrote lots of things down on his clipboard, and he, he crawled around underneath, you know, in the basement, and went up in the attic with a flashlight. And he took lots of pictures of the interior and the exterior of the home. And finally, after about an hour, an hour and a half, he was done, and they all met back uh, kind of in the front living room, and the couple was eager to hear what he had to say, and so they said, well, how, do, how does it look? And he said, well, I should have a full report to you in a couple of days, and it will have pictures, and it will list everything that you know I, I saw and everything about the house that you need to know, and they said, yeah, I, I understand that, thank you, but just just give us a rundown. What, what did you think? And he said, well... You know it's dated. He said, you probably saw the peeling wallpaper in the kitchen and the, the pink toilet and bathtub and sink and up in the bathroom. It, it's kind of dated. You may or may not want to do anything about that. And he said, yeah, that's, that's no big deal. And he said, well, what you might not have seen is, although it advertised a new roof, and it is a new roof, but they must have had some water damage when the old roof was still there because some of the, the drywall has some water damage and that's going to have to be replaced. There's no mold, but it's, it's, it needs to be replaced. They said, okay. He said, and there's, uh, some of the windows are broken. You have to kind of pull back the curtains, but in the corner there's some broken glass and there's no screen, so that's just open to the outside. There's air coming in. That's, that's going to have to be fixed. And they said, oh, okay, we didn't see that. They said, and you know the garage door doesn't work. I said, no, we haven't tried it yet. He said, yeah, it's, it's not in the track, and it's kind of sitting sideways, and it's missing some parts. That, that's not operational. And they said, oh, okay. And then he said, but the house has good bones. He said, structurally, it's sound. 
the foundation is in good shape, there's no sagging, the walls are level and square, the attic looks good, there's no mold structurally, this house is fine. So if you're willing to put some work into it, this should work out for you. You said, you know what, this is a classic fixer-upper. If you're looking for a fixer-upper, you found it. I said, okay. Bill Dad's second speech is a fixer-upper. This is the second speech from Job's friend Bildad, and it is a fixer-upper. It has good bones. There are some structural things in this speech that are solid. They're level and square. They don't need to be rehabbed. But there are a couple of issues with his speech. It's not exactly in move-in condition. In fact, we wouldn't want to lift up Bildad's speech and, and give it to somebody as is. It needs a little work. So as we go through this, I want us to try to listen for what's the, what are the good bones, what's structurally sound in this speech, but then also where, where's the, the water-damaged drywall? Where's the broken glass here? Because it's not quite ready to, to move into. It's not really livable. So here's Bildad. This is his second speech, Job 18, 1 through 21. Then Bildad the Shuhite answered and said, How long will you hunt for words? Consider, and then we will speak. Why are we counted as cattle? Why are we stupid in your sight? You who tear yourself in your anger, shall the earth be forsaken for you, or the rock be removed out of its place? Indeed, the light of the wicked is put out, and the flame of his fire does not shine. The light is dark in his tent, and his lamp above him is put out. His strong steps are shortened, and his own schemes throw him down. For he is cast into a net by his own feet, and he walks on its mesh. A trap seizes him by the heel. A snare lays hold, lays hold of him. A rope is hidden for him in the ground. A trap for him in the path. Terrors frighten him on every side and chase him at his heels. His strength is famished and calamity is ready for his stumbling. It consumes the parts of his skin. The firstborn of death consumes his limbs. He is torn from the tent in which he trusted and is brought to the king of terrors. In his tent dwells that which is none of his. Sulfur is scattered over his habitation. His roots dry up beneath and his branches wither above. His memory perishes from the earth, and he has no name in the street. He is thrust from light into darkness and driven out of the world. He has no posterity or progeny among his people, and no survivor where he used to live. They of the west are appalled at his day, and horror seizes them of the east. Surely such are the dwellings of the unrighteous, such is the place of him who knows not God." Bildad's second speech, and the first thing I think that, that hits us, or that, that should hit, hit us as we look at this, is like a life as Bildad is coming to Job the second time in this second round with a little less civility and patience than he did the first time. So there is increasing impatience. You see the opening line, how long will you hunt for words? Consider, and then we will speak. So Bildad's filled up with with Job's uh, refusal to accept their worldview as well, just like Eliphaz was. He's, he's, he's tired of Job insisting on 
the fact that he's going through undeserved suffering. That's just not working for Bildad. And so he, he makes these comments, that, that line about consider and then we will speak. He's, he's saying, you need to stop talking. You, you need to, to be the one who's, who, to stop spouting off words. Instead, you need to just listen, Job. You, you're not in a position to be speaking. In fact, you need to be quiet and listen to what we have to say because as you are right now, I, I can't talk to you like this. You need to consider first, then we can have a conversation, but not right now. It's just not working. Bildad continues, are we counted as cap- cattle? Are we stupid? This is you know, sarcastic, of course. Do you think we're stupid? That's what he's saying. Do you think we don't know anything, Job? Shall the earth be forsaken for you and the rock be removed out of its place? What he's trying to get at here when he says this to Job is, look, uh, Job, do you think something as permanent and as large as this continued, passed down wisdom and understanding from our forefathers, all this this body of knowledge, this wisdom that, that is universally agreed upon, he's talking about Bildad's shoe, this idea that good things happen to good people and bad things happen to bad people in this life, and that if you see someone suffering, then they must have done something to deserve it. He's saying that, that system of thought, do you really want that to be thrown out just for you? Do do you want us to just discard the combined wisdom of our forefathers? Do you want that rock to be removed from its place? Is that what you're asking for, Job? Of course, the answer is no, he's not going to do that. Bildad is not going to abandon his own theology and his own worldview. So the, the same thing applies. He, he's basically telling Job, I, I can't talk to you like this, but what I can do is I can tell you where you're headed. And that's what the rest of the chapter is about. The whole rest of chapter 18 is Bildad describing the place where the wicked man goes. So the first thing he says in verses 5 and 6 is that it is a place of darkness. A place of darkness. The light of the wicked is put out. Whose light is put out? The wicked man. The wicked, the wicked's light is put out. The wicked are headed for darkness. The flame of his fire does not shine. Again, not shining, darkness. The light is dark. His lamp is put out. So this is a repeated way of saying this is a place of darkness. The wicked are headed towards a place of darkness. That's the first description. The second is that it is an inescapable place. It's a place of darkness. It's also an inescapable place. His strong steps are shortened and his own schemes throw him down. So who is this again? The wicked. He's talking about the wicked. So the wicked has strong steps, but they're shortened. They're cut off. Strong steps. This is describing someone who's who's uh, a strong, who's dominant, a confident person of the world, strong steps. They're, they're walking through life, not really worried about anything or concerned about anything because they have health, wealth, strength. They're in a position of, of power and dominance. But then they come to an abrupt end. They're cut short. Whatever plans they had, they're not realized. Their life, their existence will come to an end. 
The wicked man's wickedness will be his downfall. It doesn't matter how strong he is. It doesn't matter how wealthy he is. It doesn't matter how, how much in control he is in this life. His wickedness will be his downfall. It is inescapable. It's inescapable like an animal trap. Notice how many times that's referenced in this short little section. Net, mesh, a trap seizes him. A snare lays hold of him. Rope, trap again a second time. So it doesn't matter who the wicked man is. He is going to go to this place. It's inescapable like an animal caught in a trap. An animal that's been caught in a snare that doesn't have the wherewithal and the intelligence to figure out how to loosen it and, and undo it and get out of it or, or that's caught in, the, in, a, in a rope that's tightened around him and he, he can't get out. That's how inescapable this place is. So darkness, inescapable. The next descriptor is a place of terror. Verses 11 through 13. Terrors frighten him on every side and chase him at his heels. Terror everywhere. Terror chasing him. Um, this inescapable place is filled with terror, like, like being pursued by something terrifying and you can't get away from it no matter how fast you run or where you turn. Continually. His strength is famished and calamity is ready for its stumbling. Not the wicked man's strength, but the strength of either the king of terrors in verse 14 or the terrors just described or more likely the firstborn of, of death since that's what's doing the consuming in verse 13. But potentially, I suppose it could be either one of those, but it's, it, it's, it's the, the strength is not the wicked man, it's this thing or, the, or things that are pursuing him and that are going to consume him. So at this point, we need to mention maybe just a, a quick time out. So far, Bildad's been describing this place where the wicked man goes, and he's been talking uh, in somewhat general terms and maybe kind of hinting at, at Job. Uh, yes, Job had been a confident man. Maybe Job had been walking with strong steps. So there's maybe a little bit of allusion to Job there. But from this point forward, it really does seem to get personal. Uh, from this point forward, Bildad is describing on one hand the place where the wicked man goes, but on the other hand, he's really talking about Job, too. He's making some personal jabs at Job. So it, meaning the firstborn of death, it consumes the parts of his skin and his limbs. Is this a personal jab? Yeah. What's happening to Job as he's sitting in the ash heap? It says his skin is breaking out afresh. His skin is erupting. He's, got, he's covered from head to toe, it says, in loathsome sores. So on one hand, he's describing the wicked man being consumed, and Job is being consumed, the parts of his skin and his limbs. He, the wicked man, is torn from the tent in which he trusted and is brought to the king of terrors. Another personal jab. Is Job sitting in his tent, nice and comfortable? No. Job is sitting in the ash heap, which is the garbage dump outside the city limits. He's been removed from his tent. So that's another personal jab. Uh, incidentally, what are these? Terrors, firstborn of death, king of terrors? What are we talking about here? More, most likely probably a personification of death, and, and being cut off, 
the power of death, much like we do today with something called the Grim Reaper. Okay, the Grim Reaper, that's, that's a fictional character, he's not real, but we understand what we talk about when someone mentions the Grim Reaper. We're talking about death or the power of death. So that's going on, that's what's going on with this firstborn of death and the king of terrors. So it's a place of terrors. It's also, in verse 15, a place of fire. It says, in his tent dwells that which is none of his. Sulfur is scattered over his habitation. So in his tent, there is nothing that belongs. Instead, there's sulfur. Um, It's basically trying to say uh, something's there that doesn't belong there, and it's the fire, it's the sulfur. That could be translated a couple different ways. NIV renders it, fire resides in his tent, burning sulfur is scattered over his dwelling. And I think that makes a lot of sense because of the the parallelism, parallelism, fire, sulfur. So there's nothing left in his house house or his dwelling place that's, that's his. Instead, it's a place of fire. So the place where the wicked man dwells is filled with fire. It's a place of fire. And then finally, verse 16 to the end of the chapter, a place of separation. His roots dry up beneath and his branches wither above. If you remember back in chapter 14, Job was describing um, the difference between a tree and a man. And he was saying at least a tree, if it still has roots in the ground, can sprout forth and, and bring new life. Not so a man. Do you remember that from chapter 14? Well, here we've got that tree again, except this time the branches and the roots are gone. So the implication is there's no coming back. This is a place of separation, eternal separation. Verses 17 and 18, the wicked is cut off from the earth. He's not remembered. He's driven out of the world, permanently cut off. No memory of his name in the street. In other words, no memory memory of his name in public. The, the people, society, does not remember, the, uh, do not remember uh, the wicked man. Do we detect another personal jab here? I think so. What's happened to Job's reputation? Tanked. None of his friends really claim to be his friends anymore. He's been disowned by pretty much everybody. Uh, later, in just a few, uh, in the next verse or so, it talks about the east and the west. That means everywhere, for, no matter which direction you go, everybody's appalled. Everybody's reacting to Job's downfall. Nobody wants to touch him anymore. So yeah, I think this is uh, another personal jab. Verse 19, he has no posterity or progeny among his people. Personal jab? Yes, absolutely. What happened to his children? They're dead. They're all dead. He has no reputation, no friends, no children, no survivors. No matter which direction you turn, east or west, everybody's reacting. Nobody, nobody is uh, willing to, to admit that they're friends with Job anymore. And then in verse 21, Surely this is the place or the dwelling of the unrighteous. Such is the place of him who knows not God. So we take Bildad's speech, a description of the place where the wicked man goes, and we, we take in also this personal jab component that he's directing it specifically towards Job, and the unspoken message is, after he's all done, is this. Here's the place 
of the, the wicked man. Does that look familiar, Job? Any of this ringing a bell? Hey, you've experienced some of these things, haven't you, Job? You're the wicked man. You're going to that place. That's what Bill does. Here's this, this place where the wicked man goes. You're the wicked man. You're experiencing these things. You're going to this place. So that's it. That's the end of his speech. We're calling it a fixer-upper speech. And it's describing the place where the unrighteous go. The place where those go who know not God. So what is, what is he really talking about here? He's talking about hell. He's talking about hell. Now he doesn't use that word or another word like Gehenna or something we might be a little more familiar with because you remember at that time uh, the people that were living, uh, that were contemporaries of Job did not have a full-orbed understanding and, and, and uh, um, a doctrine of what happens to the soul after people die. It was a little, little sketchy. They had quite a few holes in it. They basically had this idea of Sheol, the place of the dead. Everybody goes to the place of the dead. It was a shadowy underworld. But you remember, even Job, as he contemplates what would he'd like to have happen or his daydreams, he's thinking about all these different ideas, but they really didn't have a solid understanding of uh, heaven or hell or the new heavens and the new earth, for sure. But that's what he's talking about. He doesn't use the word hell, but he's describing the place where the unrighteous and the wicked go after they die. And we know that's hell, ultimately called the, the lake of fire. But it's a hell speech. It's a speech on hell. And we have to ask this question, how did he do? How did Bildad do with his hell speech? Um, an inescapable place of darkness, terror, fire, and eternal separation. Well, let's check it out. Uh, darkness, Matthew 8, 11 through 12. Jesus says, I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline that table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, while the sons of, kingdom, of the kingdom will be thrown into outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Matthew 25, 30, and cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Yeah, that checks out. Darkness. How about terror? Hebrews 10, 26-27 says that for we are to go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there are no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that consumes the adversaries. Fearful judgment. Hebrews 10, 31, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. So yes, terror, that checks out too. How about fire? Mark 9. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. And Matthew 25, 41. Then he will say to those that is left, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. So yes, it is a place of fire. And then finally, eternal separation. And we go to Revelation 20. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. And if anyone's name was not found, 
written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. So forever and ever, that sounds like permanent separation. So we've checked it out. How, how did Bildad do in describing the place of the wicked? I'd say not bad at all. It, pretty good, actually. I'd say he was on target with each one of those things. An, an inescapable place of darkness, terror, fire, and eternal separation. Yes, that's a description of hell. So these are the good bones. This is what's structurally intact. This is what doesn't need to be gutted and rehabbed and uh, taken down to studs and things like that. Th these are the, the, the non-saggy floors and the foundation that doesn't have any cracks in it and, and the good-looking uh, you know, uh, trusses and things on top. Th these are the good bones. This is actually a really good description of hell. So what's wrong with that? What makes this a fixer-upper speech? Why wouldn't we want to just lift this up and, and, and give this speech to somebody? Where's the broken glass? Where's the water-damaged drywall? There's no call to repentance. It's just hell. It's just bad news. Now, the first time he spoke, he included a what would happen if you turn to God component. If we look back at Job 8, 5 and 6, this is Bildad's first time that he spoke, and he said, If you will seek God and plead with the Almighty for mercy, if you are pure and upright, surely then he will rouse himself for you and restore your rightful habitation. So the first time, remember the second time through, we said there's much less patience, there's much less civility. Well, this is one example. The first time around, Bildad said, Look, if you seek God, if you turn around, there's still hope for you, Job. But this time, nothing. This time it's just bad news. You're going to the place of the wicked with no hope, no chance of restoration. Just bad news. That's why it's a fixer-upper speech. It's, it's missing a crucial component, and that is hope, repentance, turning to God. It's just absent it's got good structure uh, that those things are true about the place of the wicked, but it's missing something. That's why it's a fixer-upper speech. Now, it is true that those who die without faith in Christ go to hell. That's something we're not going to deny. That's, that's plain biblical teaching. Scripture teaches this in several places. And that's necessary. God must display the fullness of his character. He displays his mercy and his grace, but he also displays his wrath. And God must display the fullness of who he is. He's not going to stop sending people to hell that do not place their faith and trust in him. He displays his grace and mercy by electing some and calling them to himself. And he displays his wrath by passing over others. That's called rep reprobation assigning others to hell. But if we're going to give a hell speech, we better include a call to repentance. We better include the good news of the gospel and not just this is where you're going. We've got to include faith in Jesus' name. And, and here's why. This is the way the Bible presents it. Remember, this, the, the three friends, even though a lot of the things they say are true, they're not put forth for us in the book of Job for us to model and follow after to the letter. 
This is another one of those places that's descriptive. It's actually telling us what Job's friend said, but it's not prescriptive. It's not a model for us to pick up and say, okay, this is the type of advice I should give to my friend when I find them suffering. No. No, so we have to look at the whole of Scripture to find out what the overall pattern and message of, of the Bible is. And if we look at the overall pattern of the Bible, and let's look at just Romans for a minute. Let's consider the book of Romans. And if you think about a rough outline of Romans chapter 1, Paul starts off with his, his greeting. He talks about um, uh, the righteous are saved by faith. He's not ashamed of the gospel. And then we get into, uh, into chapter 2. We talk about the, the God's wrath and judgment are coming on the ungodly and those that are apart from Christ suppress the truth and turn away from him. And then we get to chapter 3, and there's a lot, of, a, about, uh, a lot about Jew and Gentile. They're all under the wrath of God. In fact, we see words like wrath, judgment, fury. And remember, the whole part of this beginning of Romans is Paul laying out his case that both Jew and Gentile are under the wrath of God. Both Jew and Gentile are in need of God's grace and are in need of the gospel through faith in Jesus Christ. So that's, that's the whole point of those, those first three chapters but after establishing that everyone deserves judgment, no, there is no one righteous, not one, immediately after that comes Romans 3, 21 through 26, which is one of the most powerful, succinct summaries of God and his grace to those who have faith in Jesus. God's grace in that he justifies those who put their faith in Jesus Christ, because you remember that verse talks about the propitiation of Jesus' blood. Propitiation means the turning away of wrath. Jesus' atoning blood turned away the wrath of God so that all who put their faith in him are saved. That comes right after Romans 1, or Romans 1 3 uh, to 3.20. It doesn't stop there, but that's what Bildad did. He stopped. What would it look like if, if Romans stopped at, at 3.20? Here's Romans 3.20. Um, uh, oh, I'm sorry. Here's Romans 3.21 through 22. This is, this is that succinct summary, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. That's the good news. But if we were to back up one verse, back to 3.20, it says this, For by works of the law, no man... No human being will be justified in his sight since through the law comes knowledge of sin. What if Romans stopped there? What if we only had Romans 1 through 3.20? Paul's hammering away, and, and this verse is essentially saying, no human being will ever be made right with God no matter what. They can do whatever they want in this life, they can try to live as good as they can, but no human being will ever be justified. The end. There's no good news there. There's just condemnation. It's just, well, we might as well just you know, give up uh, or eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die. I mean, what, what, what's, what's the point of living? Or our, our story in the background, in the uh, narthex there, right outside the sanctuary, we've got this green area with the rug and the couches, S-T-O-R-Y. Each one of those represents a component of the gospel. Sin, true righteousness, once and for all sacrifice, repentance and belief in you, this good news demands a response from you. What if we just had S up on the wall? We are all sinners. That's what Bill Dad did. It was a fixer-upper hell speech. 
He had good structure, he had, he had good information and help, but that's where he left them. We need both. Notice that the Holy Spirit, who inspired Paul in writing Romans, did not stop after Romans 3.20. But also notice that he included Romans 1 through 3.20. We need both. We need both of those components. We must hear the bad news before the good news makes any sense. We must hear about hell before we have a need to look for a Savior to deliver us from hell. We need to hear about our sin before we look, need to look for a Savior who will deliver us from our sin. We've got to have both. It would be like having a house with no roof, or a roof with no house. Either one, not livable. It doesn't work. The wrath of God, the reality of hell, yes, and the power of the gospel to save. And that's where Bill Dead fell down, and that's why it's a fixer-upper hell speech. Well, this seems like an easy application, right? Just make sure we include both. Easy. Maybe not. Maybe not. I would say the temptation to leave out one or the other depends on whether or not we like someone. So imagine a family member or a friend or someone you're very close to or maybe somebody at work that you talk to every day and you make you have good conversation, maybe even hang out socially once in a while. Someone you've been praying for, someone you're on the same page with, and you're, you're genuinely working with them. When you think about that person, you think positive things, you're generally happy to see them. I would say we'd be more likely to talk about the love of God, the forgiveness of sins in Jesus Christ, the new life that he offers, the, the transforming power of the gospel, how, how much, uh, how, how, what a relationship with God through Jesus Christ looks like. All the, all the spiritual benefits that are poured out for those who are in Christ, we're much more likely to talk about those things. Probably not quite as ready to confront them with their sin. Or to tell them they're a sinner. Or to flat out say, if you die tomorrow you would be going to an inescapable place of darkness, terror, fire, and eternal separation. I'd say it's a little more difficult to hit somebody with that. On the other hand, if we have somebody that we do not like, let's say this person is your enemy. Maybe they've hurt you. Or maybe, maybe it's not even someone you know personally. Maybe it's someone you know of. Maybe it's somebody you've seen in the news. Maybe it's a politician. Maybe it's an activist who's actively working towards immorality. Maybe it's, a, maybe it's someone who performs abortions. Maybe it's someone who, who, by all outward appearances, seems to be in league with Satan himself and is trying to further a satanic agenda we might be tempted to give them a fixer-upper hell speech. And maybe even not the whole speech, but maybe, maybe we see them on the news. We, how many of us in our hearts, at least, maybe have muttered a phrase, you're going to hell, and I can't wait. 
They're going to burn. That's what Bildad did. And Bildad was Job's friend. He just, he just got so angry with him. He got so frustrated. He got so fed up that he was done. He was done giving him any good news. He's just saying, this is, this is where the wicked go. That's where you're going, Job. See ya. Can't wait. I know we know this, but here's a reminder. No matter how far spiritually gone someone seems to be, either someone we know or someone in the public eye that we know of, no matter how far spiritually gone they seem to be, we are called to seek and to pray for their salvation. And that can be difficult. Instead of trying to think of another good illustration, I'm going to use scripture because it's scripture. So here's an illustration of somebody who is pretty far gone. Um, if you want to follow along, it's Acts 9, but you can just listen. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. And he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight. And at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so they might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I've heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And here he has authority from chief priests to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is my chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings of Israel uh, and the children of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul. So you see what's going on here. The first, uh, God comes to Ananias and said, I want you to go to this guy named Saul. And he says, <laughs> uh, I don't think you get it. Um, I'm sure you probably know this, but I'm just going to remind you, this guy is evil. This guy is evil. He's in league with Satan. He is violently persecuting the church. And the Lord answers him and says, no, I don't think you get it. I've chosen him. And I've called him to myself, and he's going to be my instrument. You see, the first time Ananias, Ananias answers, uh, Ananias, he calls his name and he says, Here I am, Lord. That's a very solid, um, and it finds old, old Testament roots, that's a very solid, faithful response. Here I am, Lord. Here I am. Send me. He's really eager to do whatever the Lord would have him to do. But when he hears that it's someone who is evil and who is persecuting the church, then he's like, ah. On second thought, But then the redeeming part is, at the end, after the Lord says to him one more time, go, he goes into the house, lays his hands on him, and says, Brother Saul. So immediately, he now he has received him as a brother. And that's how the power of the Holy Spirit works. There could be somebody who is seemingly in league with Satan. He could be 
or he or she could be, uh, from outward appearances, as evil as it gets, but the power of the gospel means that anybody can be called and saved. So it's our task not to pass judgment on how evil somebody is, but to seek and pray for their salvation, and that can be difficult. We need to acknowledge that. It is. But here's the thing. As we start to pray for, for people that, that seemingly out there, I, I'm, I'm sure we've all got somebody in mind. It, when we start to pray for somebody like that, as we form those words, and as they start to come out of our mouth, that provides, like a, it's like a, a feedback system. The more that comes out of our mouth, the easier it's going to be to pray for that person. If we get over that first hump of, of just starting to pray positively for someone's salvation, then the Holy Spirit um, joins us in, in, with His power and makes it even easier. So, let's make a commitment. No more fixer-upper hell speeches. Can we do that? No more truncated gospel presentations. No more, no more half-muttered prayers as we watch the news about someone's salvation. Let's make sure we proclaim the whole gospel. We pray for all people, seek their salvation, and we give them everything from the foundation all the way up to the roof. Amen. Heavenly Father, as we look to your word, we see examples of, of people that your own word describes as, as evil. And then we see them being saved and called brother. And Father, we know it's tempting. We know it's tempting to, to take a route like Bildad and just let them have it and give them the fixer-upper, leave out that, that word of hope, leave out the, the part about salvation. But Father, as your word teaches us, if, if we can't forgive others, then, then we don't have any idea what forgiveness is all about. If we understand that we have been saved by grace, then there's no reason anyone else should be denied that either. So Father, give us the power to pray for all people's salvation. Give us the power to proclaim when we, we proclaim the gospel, and, and not just the, the words of hope to those that we may be tempted to leave it out, but also the words of warning for those that we love. Enable us to, to speak your whole truth. I pray this in Jesus' name, amen.